You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Did you ever want to arrest for a murder or winning law? Who is the gas station attendant? But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. everybody and welcome back to truth and justice we are coming to you and by we i mean myself and of course mike bussing hello and zach weaver howdy and we are now in nbi studios we're calling it 1.9 i want to give you guys a little bit of heads up here at the onset of the show that we are the actual the real maybe not the ogs but the real true crime garage guys at this point this is as legit as it comes. Yeah, because we are legitimately recording in a garage in our new new space. Uh, we just moved into our new house this week, and we have the building here where we're going to set up our studio and office, but um, we have a lot of construction to do for that. So Mike and I spent the day Monday getting ourselves a, a temporary studio set up, and that's where we're at right now. So again, there's no, we don't have any soundproofing in here, but we're, I mean, we're out in the stick, so there's not... A whole lot of sounds coming in. More, more of a concern is the echo. So if our voices sound a little bit weird and there's a little bit of echo, that's because we are we're literally just sitting in the middle of a garage. Yeah, and hopefully this is all temporary. So. Yeah, well, it is going to be temporary, hundred <laughs> percent. It better be. Um, but yeah, so this weekend we're recording this on Tuesday, and uh, Friday starts the construction of the sound booth. Will be first, so we can hopefully get a little better sound coming out of here. And then uh, we'll move on to our offices and stuff. So with all that being said, this is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 7, Episode 4, where I interviewed Jim Clementi. And and you heard that was kind of a fly-on-the-wall type of episode where Jim and I were just kind of discussing and talking through some things. I did send him some information ahead of time for him to review the case. He listened to the first two episodes, so we had some background. He actually hadn't heard Episode 3 yet when we recorded Episode 4 because it hadn't been produced yet. And as you heard, we, he had some interesting insights. His profile and my profile differed a little bit, quite a bit, actually. And so we're going to get into talking about all of that. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, why don't we first start out by talking about the differences in your profile versus Jim's? 
Yeah, I actually was uh, a little surprised by Jim's profile. Now, what you guys didn't hear because we we cleaned it up at the end was right before Jim gave his preliminary profile, which was essentially that someone with a known personal relationship to Bill and likely someone who's not terribly criminally sophisticated and probably on the younger side. What you guys didn't hear was right before that him saying, when, when we thought Mike and I were on the phone with him, thought we still had plenty of time. And Jim said, by the way, I have two minutes before I have to leave. Ouch. Yeah. So that came into, okay, real quick. Can you tell us what your, your preliminary profile yeah. is? Yeah. I, I really wish we would have had more time with Jim to be able to flesh all that stuff out. But. Yeah. And, and we've talked since then. And Jim, I'm sure Jim's going to come back when we have more information. I, I actually really want to have him come back because I didn't get a chance to talk through. He didn't know what my profile was. And I didn't get a chance to talk through with him the differences in how we came to that conclusion. I did it right at the end. You heard me asking about the uh, the cash register drawer. It's because, you know, Jim sees that as a sign of staging to make it look like a burglary, making it look like a bonehead move and and being a less mature type move by grabbing that. It was it was a stupid thing to do. Yeah, it was I was really interested to see how different they were. You know, they still had a lot of aspects that were the same, mm-hmm. being that obviously there's a known relationship, but being that you kind of gave the the perp a little more credit right. on being sophisticated where he didn't. And that that was really interesting to me. And I, I'm curious as how that came about. Uh, well, it, it's it came about quickly, <laughs> you know, in, in that <laughs> in that question. But you know, I think it comes down to a lot of what we were talking about, Mike and I last week, about how we're analyzing certain behaviors, you know, and, and the, our, our, I think our big disconnect between me and Jim comes in with the cash register till. Yeah. You know, where I, I see that as I, I, that's why I want to talk to Jim about it a little more, because to me, I don't see that as staging. I think that maybe the money's taken, maybe that's taken as, is to make it look like a robbery. Jim and I do agree on the major point that this is clearly someone that has some beef with Bill. Yeah. It, this is not, this was not a robbery gone wrong. There's nothing in the evidence that indicates that. It's, but it's a matter of why, why take the till. And, you know, I still kind of stand by until, you know, I shouldn't say, I'm not to say that I disagree with Jim, but I still feel like it was a forensic countermeasure for the, the unsub to take that till with them. Uh, because, you know, all it would have taken is for that person to have, instead of telling Bill to lift the, the, the till up to look for bills underneath it, is if they just got pissed and reached over and grabbed it. And, and all they, if they know that's the only thing I've touched, that's what's got my fingerprints on it yeah. to just snatch it and go. But I still don't think there was money in it when they left either. But like you said, you, you thought that you, you more agreed with Jim, that it was more probably somebody younger. Uh, yeah, I did definitely agree with that. Um, the big thing for me is, uh, like you mentioned, the disagreement between uh, how you guys looked at the till being taken. The till being taken lined up more with somebody inexperienced, just made more sense to me. It, not so much a, a forensic countermeasure. I didn't agree with Jim's assessment of it being staging, if I'm understanding what he means by staging. Well, I, th- I think what he was saying was that the money and the register had nothing to do with anything, meaning mm-hmm. meaning the guy went there to, to argue with Bill, ended up shooting Bill, and then took the register. To try to make it look like a robbery. Right. So that it, it was staged to look like a robbery. I personally don't agree with that. Well, and I got to agree that I don't think it's a forensic countermeasure. And, and we talked about the the spent brass. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about a revolver versus a pistol. And right. A pistol would, would actually eject the spent brass into the into the store, basically. Right. I don't think that that suspect 
policed his brass. Like I'm pretty sure it's a revolver. Right. Because if anybody knows, brass is hard to find anyways. Mm-hmm. If you're even if you're outside in an open yard, brass is hard to find. Twenty two is tiny. Twenty two is tiny, and then you're in a store that it's got nooks and crevices to get into. Mm-hmm. I don't see somebody spending the time to try to dig brass out, which is why I think that maybe he's not as sophisticated as we think. And also on that note, the the gun he used, the twenty two, really stands out to me. It seems to me like, you know, if it, if it was an enforcer type person or somebody who was experienced in assaulting or, or using a gun against people, that they would have something a little higher caliber than a twenty two. Like a twenty two to me comes across like it might have been something that that person could have laying around the house or easily get their hands on. Cheap, right. With that, I do have to disagree because if it's somebody that knows about a firearm, an enforcer per se, a twenty-two they know is not going to exit a body. So if I carry a 9mm, a a 40 cal, 45, Mm -hmm. now I have to worry about that round exiting the body and wherever it's going to go next. Whereas if you know that it's going to be clean, like... 22 to that body that bullet is not going to leave you don't have to worry about any other issues and if you're thinking if you're thinking in that that far depth i mean that's the guy who does pick up his brass and that's the guy who does stage the crime so i mean yeah there's so there's a lot of unknown elements here see i was thinking i don't know statistics on that i've heard of a lot of shootings where a 22 is used a lot of times they're like gang shootings though you know they're they're people from you know whatever socioeconomic class you know in the streets so to speak where those are guns that are easily accessible because they're cheap mm-hmm. um so, so but i don't know why the would someone who knew a little bit about guns choose a 22 me i wouldn't because i i just know it's a weak round you know that you, you can you know you can shoot an animal with one and they run off and you'll never find them again you know you wouldn't use that gun to hunt with is kind of how i'm drawing it in on my own experiences However, one thing that is true about the 22 besides the the fact that you're not going to get an exit wound is the the loudness of yeah. it. You know, if you're if you're in a public space shooting someone, 22 is pretty quiet and more likely for someone not to hear it. Well, the other thing you you said about taking a 22 to hunt with, when you're hunting, you're shooting at a distance. Mm-hmm. With an issue like this, a topic like this of a murder, you're shooting at arm's length. Mm-hmm. That muzzle velocity is still pretty high. It hasn't lost its power yet. Right. Where, yeah, it might not have any knockdown power for a deer right. at 30 yards, but a person at two feet, it's still going to have enough power to penetrate and do damage. Right. And so that makes me wonder if maybe, and, and again, I don't, I'm just spitballing, I don't know the answer to this, but it makes me wonder if it's, it's a gun that's chosen because it's so quiet. And on that note, I, I do want to let you guys know, so we have, we have no internet. I think I already mentioned that here yet. So it's been tough for us to, in, in the midst of all this, there is a, a private investigator that's a former police officer named Ray, who's been working on this case for years uh, out east. And he heard the episode with Jim Clemente. And he did send me an email telling me, uh, because, you know, I've got all these files I'm trying to find and organize because I just, someone else organized them, which makes it harder for me to find stuff that I'm looking for. Uh, but he said there, are, there was some forensic analysis done on the, the bullet. And the round, um, I believe he said that it, that it, it likely did come from a revolver. Uh, but I haven't been able to even access my Dropbox to pull up the files that he's sending me because we have no cell service, very, very little cell service here too. So just know that's coming. So we should have a little more information on that. Um, I just, I immediately thought revolver 
because there's no brass, you know, and, and again, that's, I mean, that's, that's another step above. You've got, you've got your, your punk kid that goes in and shoots somebody. Then you've got your, your bully type enforcer or whatever for some group. And then you've got like professional hitman. The professional hitman is the one that pick polices his brass and yeah. gets out of there. I don't think either of those other two categories are going to take the time to look for their brass to go up. So I think that's, I thought it's got to be a revolver. Because there's nothing here to indicate to me this was a professional hit, but the fact that there's no brass means it's probably revolver. And also, there's just there's just not a lot of semi-automatic 22s. There are some, yeah, but they're not common. Most 22 pistols are revolvers. Yeah. So to put a button on kind of the difference of the profile, we we've got a long way to go. As Jim said, as he closed the episode, you know, we need more information yeah. to really develop a good profile, but. Keys to us looking for our unsub in, in the profile. You know, we've got, I feel like we've got somebody more mature. He feels like we've got somebody younger. Uh, but the, the important part is for us to know that we're looking for someone, I believe, based on my assessment and Jim's assessment, that we're not looking for a random gas station robber. We are looking for someone who had beef with Bill Little, someone who had a known personal relationship to Bill Little. This was not a robbery gone wrong. This was a personal cause homicide. Mm -hmm. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. All right, let's get into some social media questions. John wants to know, who do you need to talk to next to learn about Bill in his later years, since most of his friends didn't see him in those last months and years of his life? Well, I mean, the obvious answer to that is Danny Hartley. And as an update on that, I actually, shortly before we recorded this, sent Danny Hartley a text. Somebody, a listener, had gotten in touch with him, let him know that I was looking for him, and he told them to have me give him a call, passed on his number. Uh, so again, cell service is a little spotty here, so I sent a text out. I haven't heard back, but that was literally an hour ago. So I'm hoping, and I guess this is a good point to let you guys know too, Sunday's episode, it, your guess is as good as mine, what we're doing. Uh, <laughs> because we're, uh, we're doing, you know, I've, I've got active areas of investigation, but we got halted with the lack of internet and phone service. So it, I've got about three different things that I'm working on. I've got a few people that are lined up for interviews that are still kind of up in the air. So uh, we'll we'll have something for you Sunday, but it may be a little echoey and may not be what I was planning to do for Sunday. That's really exciting though. You got Danny Hartley, yeah, at least I, some communication with Danny Hartley. Yeah. So I'm hoping that if he if he gets back with me, that I'll interview Danny and you'll hear that Sunday. Because I still feel like that's a huge piece of this puzzle. I think that he, I, and to be honest, Danny might not know what he knows if that makes sense you know so so he may have information because because of the way this case was investigated originally there was never a focus on victim the victim there was never a focus on victimology uh and i I have seen some police reports i was just reading right before we we started to record today where they were looking for people that had some issues with bill but but not they didn't dig they, they, they had their they had their target set they had their sights set on someone early on and that sort of put blinders onto the investigation so Danny may have some information about those robberies in Leroy. He may, you know, as far as, meaning he was so close to Bill that Bill, he, Bill would talk to him, I think, more than he would talk to his mom. I think yeah. he would talk to him more than he would talk to his dad or his high school friends. 
So, you know, Danny could have some keys that could unlock the case. So hopefully we hear from him. If we do, and he agrees to do an interview, you guys will hear that on Sunday for sure. Even if it's not even edited good with music, we'll just <laughs> put it out. We'll get you, we'll get it out there. All right. Kimberly wants to know what were Bill's work habits? Was he a reliable employee? Yeah. I mean, when you and I, Mike, when we talked to Steve Hill, who's a guy that worked the shift before, he said Bill had been working there for about three months. You know, we asked, he just, you know, he just described him. He didn't know him real well, but he said, described him as being a nice kid. They kind of talked to, you know, whenever they were doing shift changes and stuff. And I think he said he trained Bill and said he was a good worker, showed up on time, did his job, never had any issues with him. So as far as we know, Bill was a model employee. Kimberly has another question here. She says, also, do we have any indication of who the person was that bought cigarettes and a soda for 2.45 at 8.05 p.m.? Honestly, I think it was the guy who killed Bill. Do you really think he would spend the money, though? It's a good question, because my initial thought was, when I'm working on the profile and a behavior analysis, you know, I've never worked on a crime like this one. Yeah. And I thought, who would go in and spend money just to rob the place? That's what I think. But then there was there were several people who like had worked in retail, some people who had been robbed before that have commented on Twitter and Instagram and the Facebook page that said it's it's common. There was one there's one woman I think said she was robbed twice working retail in her life, and both times the person came in and made a legitimate purchase first, kind of scoping it out, taking a look in the drawer before they robbed him. Well, yeah, I guess it makes sense. You're going to get that money back, right? Yeah, <laughs> you're going to get it back when you're done. But then again. Going back to our profile, if the robbery was never the motive, if, you know, I don't necessarily think this person went in there to kill Bill. Yeah. I think this person went in there and had a problem with Bill and was going to confront Bill and was going to threaten Bill. And I think he just didn't get out of Bill whatever he wanted throughout that period of time. And I don't think it was money. Yeah. Because if it was money, then why does Bill still have a $20 bill? If the guy's holding a gun to you and says... You know, you, you, know you, owe, you owe me this money or you're going to pay this or you're going to do this or I'm going to kill you. You're giving them everything you got. You're giving them your, the, your wallet, your wristwatch. You're giving them everything you have. The fact that Bill still had his wallet in his pocket with $20 and it tells me the guy, was, it wasn't about money or he would have given him that in order to save. Even if it is in one of the statements from Bill's mom, she actually said that Bill told her that he would never, if the gas station was ever robbed, that he'd never give up the money, that he'd fight. But, you know, that's easier said than done yeah, when you're staring down the barrel done. of a gun, you know, and, and obviously he did. I mean, he the, the money was taken, the drawer was open before he was killed. Uh, so I think that the, the money really had very little to do with it. So going back to that, as far as who, who did it, I don't, I don't think there's any reason to, now that I, I've thought about it more and gotten a lot of feedback from listeners, I don't think that there's any reason to assume that whoever killed Bill wouldn't have made a purchase. Now, I think that it was. I say that because that no sale, which we believe was Gutierrez buying his $3 worth of gas, happened within a minute of it. And the guy was already inside. So I feel like there was only one person there. Yeah. And actually, uh, this week, so the woman who brought me the case, uh, who was an advocate for the, the man that was convicted, Jamie Snow, uh, had a in Bloomington down there had a county fair down there this week and she's had a booth down there uh, that they do every year advocating and asking for information and stuff like that and actually Gloria or Jeannie Luna who was it was a member of the Luna boys that lived across the street yeah. she was the person who was supposed to be working that night okay her there she was I think she was like a sister in law or aunt something like that relative to them that worked over there, she actually came up to the booth and talked. She didn't want to do an interview, but she did give some information. 
to uh, to Tammy at the booth, and she said that actually the store was pretty quiet. It was it, she liked working in that store because it was a quiet store, mostly regulars, and it was, we heard from most of the witness statements. They also they knew the, the attendant, they knew Bill. Um, especially in the holidays, it was quiet. And the reason someone had asked this a couple weeks ago, the reason she wasn't working that day is because she had kids. And so she had requested to have Easter Sunday off. And so since Bill was a teenager without kids, he, Makes sense. he took the shift. Now, you, you said, Zach, that you had worked up some kind of a, a scenario you wanted to run by us. Yeah, I just, I mean, listening to this, I kind of came up with a, another narrative to this, the time frame and the, the amount of time that's spent between these, the known times we have, which is the, the unsub comes in, obviously knows Bill. We, we figure this out. Maybe he does make a legitimate purchase with no intent to kill bill or anything like that Mm -hmm. the unsub knows that bill knows that that person is part of these other robberies possibly because that's what we talked about is he might go to the police and Mm -hmm. so he's in there to like you said maybe enforce like hey you're not going to say anything are you right and and bill kind of goes back and forth and the gentleman comes in to pay for the gas and he opens the drawer and he's kind of shook up because he knows oh man this guy's here you know he hits the silent alarm Without any indication that he hits the silent arm, you know he might. Oh, I got, I got to get something from down here. Mm-hmm. Hits it, has no idea. And then there's that communication, that time frame where they've already said Bill is kind of that pacifist and he's kind of that peacemaker. So mm-hmm. maybe he's trying to talk the guy into like, hey man, just I, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna, you know. And at a certain point, the guy starts threatening Bill enough that he's like, hey, I pushed the silent alarm. The cops are gonna be here any minute. Oh, that's not a bad thought. And then that's when the suspect opens fire. Like that, that triggers him. Too. That triggers him. Yeah. It's not the actual pushing of the button, but it's like it's Bill saying. It's Bill I've, saying, "Hey, I've already pushed the it. The cops are coming. They're coming. You need to get out of here." Because mm-hmm. he doesn't think that he's going to kill him. He thinks that he's going to run at that point. Right. And then the question still becomes, why kill him? Then even still. Well, then you've triggered him. He's mad. Right. Again, it still doesn't make sense, but mm-hmm. it gives that narrative of like how this could happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Just something I thought of. Yeah. No, that's that's actually because I have an, another thought on that. So from uh, Miss Luna that was talking to uh, Tammy at the booth, a couple things. One, the silent alarm. She actually drew a diagram where it was at. Okay. Uh, she said it wasn't hard to access. It was maybe so the it's an L shaped counter. If you can imagine the the registers like in the corner of the counter, and then there's the, so so you have a, an empty counter where you're facing the customer, and then the register would be at an angle off to your right. The silent alarm button wasn't quite under the register from where she drew it. It was under the counter, kind of between you and the customer, over by the register. But she said it was only maybe two, three inches inside the counter. Okay. So not like uh, Chuck had said at his store where you had to reach way under there to push it. She said you could just reach your hand under the counter and hit it. And she said she was actually robbed at that store I, I know, it was a few weeks or months prior to. And she had dropped some change. And when she came up, she tapped the silent alarm. Uh, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is, as far as what triggered him, something that I don't think any of us had thought about is the question to come up was, did you have to pay for gas or uh, air? Did you have to pay for air? Did someone, could, could Martinez have had to come in to get change to put air in his tire? The answer is no, it was free. But she said it was really, and, and, and also, and I think you have this question, Mike, so I'll answer it now. Um, no, you could with the boarded up windows, you could not see where the from from where the clerk was at, where the unsub would be standing. You could not see where Danny was putting air in his tires. But she said you always knew when someone's putting air in their tires because it was loud as hell. Okay. And it didn't even occur to me those air pumps. There's a massive air compressor 
that puts air to those pumps, and the compressor is in. It. She didn't understand because because she, she uh, it, what she had told Tammy was, well, I don't, I can't believe with as loud as that air compressor was that the guy could have heard even a backfire or heard shots in the store. But I don't think what she understands is that noise she was hearing was the compressor that's inside the station. And then it's just a hose that runs out to... So you wouldn't hear that compressor out where you were putting the air in. But when you're inside the station, near the back room, where the compressor's at, that's where all that noise is. So we talk about what was the trigger. Did they know something was happening? Somewhere right on that, when, when Martinez starts pumping air in his tires, that compressor is going to kick on and start making a lot of noise. I don't know what all that means just yet. I literally just read that 20 minutes before we sat down. But it, it's something for us to know is that the compressor was very loud inside the station, would alert the people in the station. That someone's there. That someone's out there. Necessarily, though, because, I mean, it sounds like the the former employee you just mentioned didn't know that, that that the compressor was in there. I'm sure that customers that come in and out might not know what that sound is exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's true. So they could, I think they absolutely would have heard it happening. Right. Yeah, you're right. They may not have known what that was. Right. But Bill would have known that, that you know, that would know exactly what that meant when he heard that sound, whether he understood yeah. where the compressor was or not. You work there for three months when you hear that sound, you know somebody's out there. Yeah. And so that I think that factors into the scenario one way or another. That's, I mean, that's a big find. Yeah, I think I think so, and I I think it it maybe brings us more questions than answers, but you know that's part of the process. So for us to know, so so now we're thinking about maybe like what you said, Zach, where Bill is saying, you know, uh, you better get out of here. I push the alarm. The cops are coming. Yeah, uh, because also you have so we we know that neither Williams or Pilo arrived on scene, lights and sirens, but Williams said in in his statement that he shut his lights off, his overhead lights short of the scene so he could uh, approach quietly but it's nighttime you know with all those lights going to make I've, I've wondered a couple times so well even if he shut them off a block away you could see those lights going down the road you know they're they're bright you can yeah. see them and it's pretty flat right there mike and i drove it it's pretty flat you go uphill just a little but not a whole lot i mean very very low grade so you know you, you've got maybe those lights coming maybe bill says i pushed the alarm you better get out of here or Bill says, you better get out of here. There's somebody here Yeah. when he hears the air compressor. Or the unsub knows what that sound is. You know, if they're a mechanic, they know what that sound is. Or takes a peek at whatever. So there, there's, there's more happening than we realize. I think that and, that, and that's when I'm going back to the reason I want to talk to Danny Hartley. Because, you know, Danny Hartley may not know who killed Bill. But he may have information that could help figure out who killed Bill and not realize it. Yeah. Summer wants to know, do we know anything about Bill's romantic interests? Yeah, well, there's no date on it, but um, I'll be getting into it a little more. But in one of the police reports that I'm, I'm reading through today, in an interview, so understand these files are so redacted that you don't even know who the police are talking to. But in somebody's interview, when they were talking to police, they said that Bill did have someone, I think they even used the term in the report, like, like enemies of Bill, uh, that Bill was dating a girl from Gibson City. And there was a guy in, in Gibson City that also liked the girl or it was his girlfriend or whatever it was, but they had some sort of conflict. And then there was another person's name mentioned that Bill had some kind of conflict with, but, but again, it's Bill the pacifist, right? So, and I don't remember, I don't remember which one of those two. We're going to get into all that in much more depth as we move along. But in one of those, one of those two people had said that they went there. I think it was the guy with the girlfriend 
and they 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 went there with Danny Hartley, and Danny hit the guy that had the issue with Bill hmm. for Bill, but Danny had nothing to do with it. It said that Bill and this guy were kind of beefing over the same girl, and so Danny throws the punch and hits him. Okay, and then it says then they left because the guy wouldn't fight him. When did you say that happened? There's no date on it. It said, I mean, the report's dated in April, just a couple weeks after the murder, whoever they were talking to, but it doesn't say in that report what date that happened. It'd be crazy if that was the night of the murder. Right. Well, it couldn't have been the night of the murder because Bill was at the gas station. What do you mean? Bill and Danny together went and confronted the guy and Danny hit him. Danny and Bill were at the gas station together. Before Danny left the gas station. Right. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Mm. It could be, but I, I, I believe it says, I, I've, I've got to dig more into it, but I believe it said they went to this guy's house or it was at a party or oh. maybe it was in Gibson City where it happened. But that, that could be my brain trying to fill in gaps that weren't yeah. really there. So it, it definitely worth a little more digging into. Well, and the other thing too, like that was mentioned with this profile is what if this individual that he was dating this guy's girlfriend also is somebody that he is dealing drugs or has a gambling debt to. Now you've had that, right? You're doubling up on something that makes an issue worse. And that's what Jim was saying when he said it's important to find out if these things are connected. You know, a little gambling debt may not be a big deal or, you know, a drug debt or a drug issue may not be a big deal. Or even the fact that he knows who committed these burglaries may not be that big of a deal. But if it's the same people, so if if he's just basically he's just disrespecting the same group of people all over the place and in three different ways, then it becomes much more of a big deal. Let me hang on one second. I'm going to pause this and look at that report because I'm really what you, what you said has me wondering now, and I've got it up on my computer. Don't you love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get a hundred dollars back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year. TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. All right, so I pulled the report. I just printed this out. I'll just read it to you exactly what it says. The name is redacted, and it says this person listed one enemy of Little's as being a Pat from Gibson City who was dating the same girl as Little. The person only knew that there was a confrontation in which Little and Pat had a verbal confrontation which resulted in Danny Hartley hitting Pat, but they left when Pat wouldn't fight. So it doesn't sound like it was at the gas station. So Bill and Danny left. Right, yeah, together. Okay. So they were, there was some kind of confrontation. This guy, Pat from Gibson City, was pissed off at Bill. And they they were somewhere. Bill and Pat get into a verbal argument, and then Danny punches him. And then they sounds like they wanted Pat to fight. He wouldn't fight, so Bill and Danny left together. Interesting. And, yeah, and then we also have it says another enemy of Little's was a Chad Baker who had a couple of physical confrontations with Little, which it doesn't give any more information. Does refer us to another report, which I'll find later. But there's no dates on this. No. And then it says Chip Givens is another person listed as an enemy of Little's, but he doesn't feel he fits the composite. And it, it drives me. And, th- and this is what I'm talking about when, I, when, when I'm being vague. This is why, because that's how they're redacting these reports. No, I've never seen, na- they're redacting the name of the person that's doing the interviews. I've never seen that before. 
but the whole file is like this. So it's really, you got it a lot of times from context, you got to figure out who it is that, that they're speaking to. This person, all I know about him at the beginning is it says, blank stated he met Little three years ago while working at the pool hall in Leroy, but became close in the summer of 90. So it's somebody from that pool hall in Leroy. But anyway, we'll get into all that later. That was kind of a, a sidetrack, but there's a little bit of information for you guys. And, and once we dig a little deeper, we'll, we'll, we'll try to suss all this out. This question's from Stormy. Did Martinez say he saw the till? If the suspect had the till, he would have carried it straight out. What do you think? Martinez didn't say he saw him that he had the till. As a matter of fact, he said he, he thought he had his hands in his pockets. It was the Luna boys that, by time trial came around, Carlos Luna, when he testified, said that he could see that he had the register drawer under his coat, which I think is impossible from where he was at. And while we're on this topic, listener David wrote, Everyone keeps talking about how cumbersome taking the cash drawer would have been and having to carry it like a pizza. I've seen cash trays with covers. Is it possible it had a cover which would allow you to carry it under your arm or something? It did not. That was another piece of information we got from Gloria Luna when she was at the the booth at the fair this week. She said, no, it did not have a cover. It never had a cover. Well, that settles that. Mm -hmm. Lauren says, just to clarify, we do not have a witness to the unsub entering the gas station, right? Right. Yeah. As far as we know, no, again, I, we had this conversation, but I believe that it was probably the unsub that was already in there when Jerry Gutierrez went in, but that we don't know that for certain. Angela says, did police knock on doors of neighbors around the gas station? How do we know the killer didn't just walk home? They did. They did quite a bit of canvassing, and that, that's going to be kind of an episode in and of itself. Like I mentioned this week, I don't sure, I'm not sure exactly what this episode is going to be like this week because I don't know what we're going to be able to get done. But that's on the docket for one of the next couple of weeks is to go over the door-to-door canvassing. We've heard a little bit of it. I mean, the Lunas, their information came from the door-to-door canvassing. So a few of them you've heard from, but we, we will be covering all that and getting those documents posted again once we have the internet. Greg wants to know, is there any chance of an interview with Martinez? I would love to, but hes I haven't been able to track him down. And from what I understand, other people that have worked, investigators, lawyers that have worked on this case for years, he has always avoided talking to anyone. And uh, when they have contacted him, his response has always been, talk to the state's attorney's office because he was a prosecution witness. So I, I don't know. I would love to hear from him. If anybody knows him and can put us in contact, I would love to chat with him. But as of right now, it doesn't look likely. Fred asks, was the cash register ever dusted for prints? Is it possible that the suspect was the last person to press the no-sale button? The register was dusted. I'm trying to remember. There was very, because I read the crime scene, and it's posted on our website, the crime scene investigator's trial testimony. He talked about the areas he dusted for prints. I think he dusted in a couple places on the register. They pulled some latents. I don't know that he hit the no-sale button specifically. The problem is anything, which Mike, you and I know from going to the the fingerprint lab, that fingerprints aren't as easy to come by as you might think. It's, no. Yeah, it's got to be the the perfect type of, of surface or material to pull it. For example, I the the gentleman that was we were working with down there in Mississippi, uh, when we went to the lab, gave us some some lessons on how to dust for prints and gave us some equipment to do it. Yeah. And so I've tested it quite a bit. And like this table, you can't get a print off this table. Yeah. Uh, because even though it looks flat and smooth, it has a little bit of texture to it. And because of the material, the oils from your skin don't really adhere to it very well. You could take your thumb and press it right down the middle of this table and I could dust it and I might get a really broken up partial. 
So a cash register depends if the if the buttons were smooth. First of all, you could get anything, and then also there's you know anything that a lot of people have touched repeatedly. You're not going to be able to. It's impossible to pull a clean print off of that. Yeah, and surprisingly, that analyst told us that one of the most likely places or easiest places to get a fingerprint would be off of paper, which was nuts. Yeah, you actually printed me after you got back that week. Right, yeah. You said, here, put your hand on this piece of paper. And I did, and then you immediately pulled my prints off of it. Yeah, it's weird. I always thought, like, glass, right? Because you look at your your iPhone or whatever, and you can see your fingerprints on it. But no, he's like, paper. Paper's perfect because what you're actually printing are the all the ridges in your fingers have tiny little pores all in them, and the oil comes out, and and that's what you're pulling those the oil from those ridges out. And anything on glass or smooth surface, if you move or nudge or slip just a little bit, it smears it. And it can wipe off and it's hard. But he said, paper, you grab paper, it's porous. The oils just go suck right into it and you can pull them right back out. I printed everyone in my whole family with that kit. Yeah, after you he got showed me, me that. too. <laughs> and me. Yeah. Twice. <laughs> Sarah asks, do we know that the times on the cash register are accurate? I don't have any way to know. For There's no report that says, at least not that I've seen yet, that says we have verified the time on the cash register. but. It was analyzed by the Illinois State Police, by the Bloomington Police, all the people that did the forensic testing and and created the timelines. And it seems that everyone is very comfortable that they worked on the case in the times on the register. So I, I've seen no indication that the, the times weren't accurate. The other thing is, too, is regardless if those times are exactly on point, like if it was 8.06 and it was really 8.07, the time frame between those two charges are still the same amount of time. Right. But it's how does it fit in with the silent alarm, which we know is accurate. Okay. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so if it was actually 8 o'clock, 8.06, and 8.08, and then the silent alarm was hit at 8.16, you know, that tells a different story yeah. than the, the silent alarm coming, you know, two minutes after the last one hit. But then again, that even puts... We, we do know the silent alarm button is absolutely accurate. That went into dispatch. I was going to say because... The time between the silent alarm and when Pilo got on scene and Martinez was there and Bill was shot, that, because I, I, I agree with Jim Clemente 100% that that is the most critical time. Anything could have happened between 8.06 and 8.12. You know, the, like Mike has suggested, somebody was trying to get, build up the nerve to do it. There could be some discussion. Somebody could have come in. There's a lot of reasons for there to be a six second gap be- or a six minute gap between when Gutierrez comes in and when the guy actually takes the money. It's the five minutes after he had the money before he shot Bill that is the critical time. That's the part that doesn't make sense. Once he has that money, he had the money, there's no reason for him to stick around there unless it was a personal cause, a personal issue with Bill that led to his murder. Yeah, that's what I was saying is that that if the registered time isn't exactly right, it doesn't fully matter that much because those time frames are still the same. Right. Well, I, I guess it, what it could be, though, is say they're off. Let me go the other way with it. Bill hits a silent alarm at 8.16. Let's say the last no sale was actually at 8.20. Okay. That changes everything because that's a no sale. Here's the money. I shoot you. Or that last no sale was at 8.21. And it's him shooting. You know, He had already hit the silent alarm, shoots Bill, hits the no sale himself, takes the cash and runs so so that's how it does it's it's that last no sale because the last no sale is when we know for a fact the money came out 
it had to there's because it, that's the last time the drawer opened and the money's gone so that that's when it came out but again I, those these are all hypothetical so i don't want to confuse everyone because as far as we know the register is accurate there's probably a forensic report somewhere that that says that that we'll get to but that's the tricky part as i mentioned about this is the the people that have brought this case to us and the case files have done an amazing job and they have organized it really really well but it's a very different organizational method than I use. So it's it's really tough for me to find things unless I just text Tammy and say, where is this? Pamela says, do we know the exact position of Bill's body before it was moved by Officer Williams? Also, I thought I read in the transcripts that the stool was found laying under the register, but you said it was near Bill's feet. Can you clarify this? Yeah, I mean, that's the same. It wasn't under the register. There was a There was a counter directly under the register, so it couldn't get under. It was like right behind the register, which is where Bill's feet were. So it's the same thing. So again, imagine this L-shaped counter, small space, and that has an opening at the end for someone to walk around it, where Bill's body was found was face down with his feet still back behind the counter where the stool normally was kept. The stool's on the ground right there behind the register by his feet, and his head was almost in the doorway to the back room. And that's from Pamela Westby, right? One of our transcribers. Yeah, yeah. Also, Pamela has has made has done a lot of work on the fan page. If you're not a member of the Truth and Justice podcast fans page on Facebook, go do it. There's awesome case discussion that happens there. I'm sort of in the dark for the last five days because I don't have internet, as I've mentioned five times today. Uh, you can't tell I'm a little bitter. <laughs> um, Pam has put together diagrams from the crime scene. She actually tracked down the exact model based on the one crime scene photo we have from inside from our website the exact model of cash register and has dimensions and photos of that register on the website. Uh, so there's lots of case discussion like that going on on the fan page. So it's definitely worth going over there and joining and being part of those discussions because there's a lot more information than just what you're hearing here. All right, we're going to end things with Brian's thought. I still believe that this wasn't a random robbery and was truly a group or individual that had some sort of issue with Bill. The question is what and why kill him after being in the station for so long? Clearly, it wasn't just a hit on his life, or it would have went down a lot quicker. 100% agree. I, th- I mean, that's, that's going to be key to this, is figuring out why. It's all about the why. That's what a you know, behavioral analysis is, is figuring out what happened first, and then the why. I agree 100% that this was not a professional hit. A professional hitman walks in, pops you between the eyes, and walks out like nothing happened. Definitely was not that. But the, the key to all of this moving forward is to answer the what. We've tried to answer the why. We've started to answer the why. But every week we're finding more and more information out as to the what happened. And once we figure out what happened, I believe we'll find the why. And that's going to lead to the who. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our Friday Follow-Up logo was created by Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I want to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. 
Thank you to our transcription team, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Pam Maples, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support the show by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website. Just click on the Case Submissions button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at TruthJusticePod, and my personal Twitter handle is at BobRuffTruth. And you can also connect with Mike, at MBussing89. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram, at TruthJusticePod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. You you make me look like a fucking giant because like you slunch down and lean back. I'm here leaning in like like an animal, and it makes me look like my head is like look, look at that monitor. My head is twice the size of yours. Also, you look a foot shorter than me. You know, sit up. Okay. okay. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right, we're gonna end things on Brian's thought. How about end things with? God. <laughs> <laughs> that was good too. Confident. Yeah. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 